Hello and welcome to episode 375 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. So many of you would have been on holiday in Cornwall in the southwest of England and loved the stunning coastline and the relaxing way of life. It isn't where you expect to hear tales of large cocaine imports from South America, IRA terrorists and murder. But then again, as we know only too well, Nothing like that ever happens around here, does it? So before we get started, let's set some context for this story with our guest, The Month and Year Game. Top of the UK charts, it was Change The Way You Kiss Me, from example. And in Australia, Adele's album, 21, was at number one for 11 weeks. In the news this month, St Paul's Cathedral celebrated its £40 million restoration project. They were celebrating wildly on the streets as Italian economist blah 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 was confirmed as the new president of the European Central Bank. Remember, all these key positions in the European Central Bank, the UN, the WHO and so on are all appointed purely on merit, aren't they? Oh dear. Goodness gracious, they're all so completely discredited and irrelevant to normal people, but there we go. Much more relevant to real people was the cinema this month. And the two top grossing films were X-Man First Class and The Hangover Part 2. Great film. Loved it. Finally, in UK True Crime this month, Levi Belfield, three years into a life sentence for the murder of two women and the attempted murder of a third, was found guilty of murdering Amanda Dowler, the Surrey teenager, who disappeared in March 2002 and whose remains were found in Hampshire six months later. Okay, so did you guess the month and year? It was June 2011. Maybe next time. Today's story is from St Austin in Cornwall, a town of about 20,000 people on Cornwall's southern coast, about 20 miles east of Newquay and 250 miles southwest of London. It's probably best known for tourism with the Eden Project nearby and it was also the birthplace of actor John Nettles, who older listeners will remember from the TV programme Bergerac. Oh, I still love that show. 31-year-old Brett Flawney was a promising boxer. Nicknamed The Soul, he had spent time in the Royal Engineers. He won an ABA medal in 2005 and almost won the television reality show Prize Fighter, the light middleweights in February 2010. But he just lost out to Prince Aaron in the final after a third round knockdown tipped the balance in Aaron's favour. His trainer, Carl Ince, spoke very highly of him both as a boxer and as a man, saying, We had a great crack in the gym. He was a funny guy, a top guy. I always see the good in people. I think about what they're like in the gym, and Brett was brilliant in the gym. If he'd stayed at it, he would have become British champion. But Brett, like so many people, drifted away from boxing, after working as a publican at a pub on the Wirral. It's a busy job, right? And when we joined the story in June 2011, he was a father of two young boys. His fiancée was pregnant with their third child. But it seems he'd managed to become entangled in the world of drugs after leaving boxing. On the 16th of June, Brett drove from his home in Merseyside in a Citroen Berlingo van. He headed south and stopped at the Tamar Bridge to pick up his friend David Griffiths. David was from the area, originally from Plymouth, but at the time we joined the story he was living in Berkshire. 
but he still ran a drugs operation from the southwest, dealing mainly in cocaine. Brett was picking up David, and the pair were thought to be heading for a night out. David told his family they were going to Newquay and would be picking up a friend at an hostel on the way, but they failed to book into the hotel as planned. And when both men failed to contact their friends and family and didn't answer their phones, their concerned families alerted the police. It was completely out of character. There were multiple appeals for any information about the two men, especially from people in the world of boxing. Brett, he was a super popular man, and he'd made a load of friends in the sport. And the police seemed to take the case seriously from day one, with a spokesman for Devon and Cornwall Police saying, Brett is known to have picked up David Griffiths from Plymouth in the Tamar Bridge car park at about 7pm in a white Citroen van which had tile style written in brown on both sides. It's thought the men then travelled to Saltash, but from there, the trail went cold. Also in St Austell in Cornwall that summer on the 1st of July, detectives acting on a tip-off carried out a drugs raid on an isolated farm known as Sunny Corner. They arrested the owner, 28-year-old Ross Stone, when they discovered that he'd been growing cannabis in two shipping containers that he'd equipped with hydroponics equipment and buried to evade detection by infrared heat-sensing cameras. It was a relatively sophisticated operation. Several days later, in a police interview, much to their surprise, Stone told detectives that the two missing men, Brett and David, were dead and buried on his property, and he told them where to dig. And shortly afterwards, officers recovered the two bodies from the white Citroen van that was buried on farmland near St. Austell. And what Stone told them was quite extraordinary. He told the detectives that the two men were gangland enforcers working for an IRA gang which effectively ran Liverpool's illegal drugs trade. Building contractor Stone told how he'd run up debts of between £30,000 and £40,000 with Griffiths and Flournoy after intervening to help a friend who was in debt and he was being put under immense pressure to repay the money that was owed. When I say immense pressure, we're not kidding here. He told how he'd faced constant death threats from the very first day against him and his family and he'd even borrowed money from his mum and allowed the pair to turn his home into a cocaine processing plant supplying users in Cornwall. He told how he was utterly terrified of the two men as they knew the address of his children, his family and had made repeated threats to kill them. Threats they didn't doubt for one moment would not have been executed if he didn't return the money that he owed the two men. As an example of their ruthlessness, he told how earlier that year, in April, Griffiths and Flournoy had arrived unannounced at the home of his partner Laura's parents, just hours after she'd given birth to their second child, a daughter, because he just happened to turn his phone off whilst they were in the labour ward. He said how they would literally call him every 10 or 15 minutes, every day, asking for the money, and he thought they'd driven down just as they were unable to contact him for that tiny period of time when he was with his partner in the labour ward at the hospital. The two men then sent another man to babysit him and a crop of cannabis he was growing 
in a bid to give them their money. This man was 26-year-old Thomas Haig, originally from Huddersfield in Yorkshire, who also owed a significant sum of money to the two men and worked for them to pay this debt off. Haig did a number of similar jobs for them, and he'd also previously acted as a drugs mule, bringing illegal drugs back to Britain from Brazil. As a younger man, he was well known to the local police. He'd served nine months in a young offenders institution in 2005 and 2006 for dealing in heroin and crack cocaine. He was currently on the run from police, as whilst he was living in Workington the previous March, he'd skipped a court appearance in Carlisle for possession of an air gun because at the time he was in Brazil smuggling cocaine back to the UK. Stone too was already on bail for charges relating to cannabis that he was growing in an underground bunker to pay off his drug debts. He told detectives that he'd been out on the night that the men had been killed but had arrived back at Sunny Corner shortly after 9pm after Haig had phoned him in an utterly distraught state. He said that as he approached the farm he saw Griffiths' body lying in the lane and as he got into Sunny Corner he said he saw Flawney's body too. He also found Thomas Haig who told him that he'd been very badly beaten by the men. Haig was topless, dishevelled and appeared distressed. Stone said that Haig did not say outright that he was responsible for killing Flawney and Griffiths but he did say that he told him that Dave would not die. I mean, it's fairly clear what had happened and Stone believed that Haig had killed both men. He then told officers he had driven with his mum to Newquay to report the crime to police, but he'd been too scared of the dead men's associates and the potential repercussions for him and his family and so he decided to make them disappear instead. He admitted using his own mechanical digger to bury the bodies. He said that he wasn't altogether surprised at the turn of events, as Haig had talked about killing the two men in the days before they died. Haig was very arrogant in his interviews and he denied murder, blaming Stone for the double killing. He told detectives how he was being paid to be there at the farm. He went on to say that when on June the 16th, Flawney and Griffiths went to Sunny Corner, he had an argument with Griffiths over a girl after he brought a girl back to the farm. He said that Griffiths had hit him with a bit of wood, but he'd managed to disarm him. He then said that Flawney had got a gun out of the van, so he ran off. Haig told police he went to a friend's house, that he was lying and the police knew he was lying, or at least not telling the whole truth. Detectives had discovered that he went to a caravan of another friend to shower and to change his clothes. Detectives suspected the obvious that he was trying to keep the police away from this friend as having showered and changed to get rid of evidence linking him to the murder. He didn't want the police to know what he'd been doing. Haig admitted that that evening he then caught the train back to Yorkshire before eventually handing himself in at a local police station. He told them that Flawney and Griffiths were working for an IRA firm which ran Liverpool He told police that through experience gained from others, he knew how to get rid of bodies properly. He was a pro. He said that he would have bagged them up and take them to a mate's pig farm rather than, in his words, leave it to a thick farmer to tidy up. That disparaging comment was, of course, aimed at Stone. 
He told how he had links with the Turkish, who could get him out of the country with just a simple click of the finger. Detectives didn't believe Haig or Stone. They believed that Stone had acquired the shotgun used for the murders and disposed of them too. Both men were charged with murder and stood trial in Cornwall at Truro Crown Court. Paul Dunkel's QC prosecuting told the jury that both men had lied about the events around the two killings. He said, When arrested by the police, the alliance between these two men broke down and self-interest took over. The murders were the result of the joint efforts of these two defendants. Although Haig had worked for the two men and was sent to make sure Stone didn't get out of line, he and Stone became allies. They'd realised that Flournoy and Griffiths were problems in their lives that were not going to go away. When these two men arrived, there was a loaded shotgun waiting for them. It doesn't matter who pulled the trigger. Each of them played their part, and so we say that each of them is guilty of murder. At the end of the month-long trial, it took the jury less than three hours to find Hay guilty of two counts of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison and told he must serve a minimum of 35 years. That means he won't be out of prison till he's over 60. 28-year-old Ross Stone was cleared of murder and was told he would serve five years after admitting burning the men's bodies and burying them after the shooting at his home. Stone, frankly, looked shell-shocked as the jury of seven men and five women returned their verdicts. It looked very much like he was expecting to be found guilty of murder. There were gasps from the public gallery as the families and friends of the two dead men shared his seeming amazement at the outcome of the trial. Passing sentence, the judge told Haig he was an arrogant young man who got out of his depth in the criminal underworld. These were bad men, but they were bad men with the right not to be killed because trading in drugs does not carry the death penalty. You were attracted to the gangster way of life. You convinced yourself you were a big boy playing in the big league. But I found your erratic behaviour made you unsuited to this elusive trade. This was no more than the result of your chosen lifestyle. You knew the rules of the criminal club when you joined, and you broke them. The judge said that the pressure he was under from Griffiths, and the man who he saw as his criminal role model, Flawney, was no excuse for the crimes he had committed. You shot these men dead, acting alone, and not in concert with Stone. You left him to cover up the carnage you left behind you. Why you did this is, to my mind, perfectly clear. How you went about it is less clear, but you aimed and fired the shots that killed these two men. Speaking after the trial, David Griffiths' mum, Janet, said the following. Our family has been devastated by the loss of our beloved David and the horrific way in which he was murdered. As a family, we never imagined we'll be standing here today and David would be gone. It really has been a living hell. We've had to accept the horrific way in which David was taken from us, but also had to endure six weeks of worrying and looking for David. To find out he was then murdered, burned and buried was truly too much to comprehend. We've had to endure months of unpleasant stories and statements being made about David, 
most of which have been completely untrue. This has put immense stress on all our families, but we do know that those who are close to David know the truth and the real Dave. And Jane Flawney, Brett's sister-in-law, made a statement on behalf of the family of the former British Army soldier who served with the Royal Engineers for six years. She confirmed that his fiancée Kelly, the staff nurse, gave birth to his third son after he died. Much of what has been said about Brett throughout the course of this trial has been unsubstantiated and alleged by two people who have now been convicted of horrific crimes, she said. We've been left totally devastated by Brett's death. He was a loving son, fiancé, father and brother. His death has left a huge gap in the lives of all our family. The worst thing is that as a result of the actions of Ross Stone and Thomas Haig, we've never had a chance to say goodbye and we still expect him to walk through the door. Haig appealed and in the hearing at the Court of Appeal, serving prison inmate David Johnson told how Stone had confessed to the murders of the two men in his cell soon after he was acquitted of the murder charge. Johnson, who was in prison himself for 22 years for attempted murder, said that Stone laughed as he confessed to the killings. He said it's not every day you get away with murder twice. He started playing with the cards and he said it was quite easy. I just had to shift the blame onto Tom. Johnson said he'd then met Haig while at prison in Worcestershire and there he'd made a statement about Stone's confession. Haig's barrister, clutching at straws to say the very least, argued that this stellar evidence backed his defence that it was Stone who pulled the trigger. He also pointed to evidence that important trial witnesses had visited Stone in prison before giving their evidence, implying that they had changed their stories to help Stone be found not guilty of murder. Giving judgment, the three judges dismissed the appeal, saying that Johnson's evidence was not credible. He is a habitual and gratuitous fabricator of stories. He is a convicted liar, said Lord Justice Aikens. All three of us have very recently listened to the audio recording of the evidence. We've concluded that this evidence about the conversation with Ross Stone is not even arguably credible. We're not at all convinced that there was a conversation on the lines that Ross Stone admitted he persuaded other witnesses to alter the evidence to put all the blame onto Haig. It does seem an incredibly weak case for a lawyer to take to the court of appeal, don't you think? And what do you think of what we've heard today, the whole story? Look, we all make mistakes in life, don't we? And I'm not in the business of judging how other people choose to make their money, their livelihoods, it's up to them. But it does seem to have been a particularly unfortunate set of circumstances which brought these four men to the remote farmhouse in St. Austell, where only two men left alive. When we listen to the words of the family of Brett and David about how lies were told about them by Stone and Haig, who knows? It's certainly the case that both of these men had the capacity to lie easily. So who knows how much they told was the truth and how much was lies? The two men who were murdered are unable to defend themselves or their actions. But I think it's fair to assume that all were involved in organised crime to some extent or another. It just shows once again that if you end up in this line of work, if that's the expression, there may be some rewards for those near the top of the chain. 
But there are always huge risks, whatever side you are on. I also wonder, I wonder if you thought this as well, what has or will become of Ross Stone? Just by reading about this story, it's very, very clear that emotions run incredibly high. And though we weren't in court and didn't hear the evidence, the clear view I have from those who were is that he was so fortunate to be found not guilty of murder. I fear that he'll always be looking over his shoulder for the rest of his life. And what of Haig? What a total waste of his life. He's thrown it away and he now languishes in a prison cell until he's at least 60, if he's ever released. I imagine few have sympathy for his predicament. I just can't help thinking, what an utter waste while he was playing at that gangster lifestyle. Even if you don't approve of their life choices, let's finish today thinking of the families of the two men murdered. They were murdered, remember? And their families left behind have suffered so much. That is the family of David Griffiths and also Brett Florney. Remember, Brett had three young children with his third son born after his death. We wish the families of all concerned well after the terrible violent deaths of their loved ones. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspects of UK True Crime, or to debate the finer points of astrophysics, please head to the UK True Crime Facebook group. There's 92,000 of us there. And to support the show, and why wouldn't you, and keep me producing this podcast every week, and listen to bonus episodes and other exclusive content, please just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. It will cost you under £2 a month, and you can cancel at any time. A huge thank you to the new members of this community this last week. That is Debbie, Vera Atterby, Thomas and Vivian Cook. Thank you all so much for your support, which is so much appreciated. And the next full-length bonus episode exclusively for Patreon members I'll be releasing tomorrow. Oh, and one other thing. If you haven't already, why not take a listen to a new true crime podcast, Mortal Musings, hosted by Thomas and Kate. From Sheffield, they tell me how they take the cases seriously, but not themselves. It's an attitude I love. Give it a go. It's called Mortal Musings. Okay, so that's all for me for this week. So if you haven't done so, please do subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just search UK True Crime Live. I think it's about 58 videos there now. And as our next True Crime Podcasters Roundtable with two fabulous new guests is heading away soon, you won't want to miss out. So go to YouTube and just search UK True Crime Live. So on that cinematic bombshell, until we speak again next week, please do take it easy, and despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.